Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Abigail Faval. She is professor in the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame. Her memoir, Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion, came out in 2018. She's been with us before on the podcast to discuss that. She had an interesting essay in First Things. I think this was your first essay uh, piece for us. Uh, that year entitled Evangelical Gnosticism. Her new book is The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. That is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Faval. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, we'll, we, we jump right into the book here. You say that you have taught, uh, right at the beginning of the book, that you've taught gender theory for many, many years. Uh, did you always suspect long ago, I don't know, I don't know how many years, uh, that gender would become such a central heated issue in American society as has happened uh, in, in the last few years? You know, it's funny, I did not. So when I um, started my feminist studies as an undergrad, and then I went into graduate school doing a master's in gender theory, and then a doctorate in feminist literary criticism, I remember sometimes I would wistfully think, oh, I wish I'd been born a little bit earlier so I could have been, you know, part of the heyday of feminism in America, because now it just kind of seems like there's, you know, not as much work to be done, I guess. So fast forward 15 years, 20 years, and now I, you know, am seen as a radical feminist because I think that um, women are female. So I, I could never have predicted that. Um, even when I was in, a, <laughs> yes, don't, don't cancel me. Um, yeah, in fact, I actually remember in graduate school being in a seminar. So this is a totally secular environment in the UK. We're in this gender theory seminar um, and we're reading a postmodern theorist. I think it was either Derrida or Levinas. And in this particular essay, he's writing as a woman, right? He's like stepping into the discursive space of a woman. And it was unanimous around the table that, hey, you just can't do that, right? You just can't do that as a male author and kind of appropriate um, the voice or discourse of women. But now that's actually um, laudatory in some ways, uh, because now, now the concept of woman has become so amorphous and disconnected from material reality that it really is a, a uh, space that can be freely appropriated by anyone who identifies into it. On that, do you think it's going to shift back? That it will then be, pretty soon we're going to get condemnation again. I think there is, I think, I mean, at some point this this will, this will have to kind of correct um, in some ways. I think 
one comforting thing is that when a particular you know, philosophical system or framework is so at odds with the brute facts of um, nature, I think it, it has a kind of short leash, but that's that's speaking in more historical times. So I don't know how quickly it'll happen, say, in my lifetime. Although I am seeing, I at least when it comes to the medical and scientific side, I am seeing positive things happening in Europe. Um, so just this year, for example, so Sweden is a progressive pioneer when it comes to what's called gender affirming medical treatments, um, such as surgeries or hormonal treatments, especially for young people. And a government oversight agency in February issued new guidelines after doing an exhaustive review of all the research and concluded that the risks of these kind of treatments, especially on young people, um, do not are not outweighed by the purported benefits. And so they've pretty much put put a stop to, um, and they're prioritizing psychotherapy now. And you're just, we're seeing similar things happen in the UK and Finland and France. Meanwhile, over here in North America, the US and Canada are just gunning ahead. Um, you know, So I don't know how long it'll take in America to begin to course correct. It's interesting to me that the sports thing does seem to be something that is getting people's attention. You know, um, Americans like their sports. Uh, I also think that lawsuits will help money talks. Um, and there's a lot of money that can be made through medicalizing healthy young people for life. Um, so it will be very interesting to see what happens. Um, but my guess is that there will be there will be some kind of course correction. I'm just not sure when it will happen in the U.S. No. Early in the book, you used the term, quote, authentically Christian feminism. What are the traits of that position? So feminism, feminist theory is interesting. So feminism doesn't really have much philosophical content of its own. It tends to be a system that is grafted onto other philosophies, which is why you have so many different kinds of feminism, like Marxist feminism, postmodern feminism, liberal feminism, because feminism per se doesn't have a lot of a lot of content, a lot of um, yeah, it borrows that in other words from other philosophical systems. So when I say an authentically Christian or Catholic feminism, what I mean is that the the underlying premises and understanding of the world and the human person is based in Christian theology and revelation, divine revelation. Um, and so only from that, those roots and that ground can um, feminism be authentically Christian. Because a phenomenon that I've seen in my years teaching in Christian higher ed is uh, people identifying as Christian feminists, but not, not really having... Um, much really kind of Christian presuppositions at work. So it really looks indistinguishable from secular feminism. Although what usually happens is that certain scriptural verses are kind of then sprinkled on top in order to justify something. So I guess I'm trying to distinguish between that kind of a feminism where the Christianity is almost like a gloss on top rather than the actual ground um, of that perspective. So that's why you turned and then let, let's go to Genesis. Mm -hmm. uh, 
where does where and how does sexual difference come in in Genesis? Well, real early, <laughs> right at the beginning. Um, yeah. So in the book, I spend a lot of time. I spend a whole chapter doing uh, a pretty deep. Um, look at what Genesis says about sexual difference. And it's really remarkable. So I draw a comparison between the Genesis creation narratives in Genesis 1 and then 2 and 3, and the Babylonian creation narrative, the Enuma Elish, which would have been the kind of dominant um, cosmology um, at the time that at least Genesis 1 was, was being compiled. So it's a very helpful backdrop because then you see these contrasts that really show the uniqueness of Genesis. Um, so the Enuma Elish is this very violent creation story. You have this clash between a feminine deity and then this masculine, this male create, you know, this masculine creator deity. And he ends up killing her with this army of crazy like horse demons. And then he rips her apart basically and forms the universe out of her corpse. And then human beings are created as an afterthought um, to be slaves of the gods. So then you have Genesis, right? And instead of having this primordial conflict between the masculine and the feminine, instead you have, um, in both creation narratives, sexual difference is almost the culmination of God's creative act. So human beings are not an afterthought, um, and sexual difference itself isn't even mentioned in the Enuma Elish. So when you look at Genesis, one of the, one of the, telling things you'll see is that the two times in both creation narratives that the text breaks out into poetry is when it mentions sexual difference. So that happens in Genesis 1 when we when we hear that God created human beings in his own image, male and female he created them. And then in the next narrative, the first human being the first words by a human being recorded in scripture are when the man sees the woman for the first time and he proclaims at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman. And so he names himself for the first time male. That's the first time we see the word male, ish, and isha, female. So the first time male and female appear in the text, it's this cry of wonder and joy um, at, at the, the, the um, and that's like the completion, right? Because before that, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. For the first time in both accounts, it's the only time something's not good because we don't yet have a sexually differentiated human being. And so that is, is then the culmination. So the, our creation narrative as Christians has a very high view of sexual difference. And that really is pretty remarkable when you compare it with other narratives in the ancient world. So Genesis is really unique in this way. And what, what you said, what, what stands out is the difference is not uh, a source of friction. It is instead uh, a, a, a way of completion, yes. right? It's, it's a positive thing. This brings up a, a phrase you cite from John Paul, the, the second quote, the spousal meaning of the mm -hmm. body, right? Our bodies are, are, are drawn toward the other body, right? The different, uh, the, the, the different sexual body. Is that what that's about? Yeah. So, our sexual difference signals our capacity for communion, right? Because what sexual difference is essentially, I mean, if you just want to talk scientifically or biologically, it's about our reproductive capacities. It's about how we participate in the creation of new life. And so it 
it signals our capacity for interpersonal communion that is ultimately life-giving. And that not only has importance in the temporal realm, because it's how our species continues to exist, but it also has um, an importance in a sacramental meaning, because it also, I mean, if you think about human beings as being the image of God, our image of God, our understanding of God is this interpersonal Trinitarian furnace of love that holds the world in existence, that continually brings forth new life. And so our sexual difference is a way of imaging that, our capacity for interpersonal communion that is also capable of bringing and creating new life. Catholics, it's time to ask yourself, is the prepackaged Catholic life enough for you? Remember, you're called to sainthood. No matter your vocation, the Saint Maker is a one-of-a-kind personal journal and planner to help you reignite your faith, succeed in life, and experience spiritual freedom. Centered on Catholic wisdom and modern productivity science, the Saint Maker keeps you focused, productive, and on fire for the faith every day. Thousands of Catholics are on the Saint Maker journey and reporting amazing results. Try it out for 90 days risk-free. If it's not for you, return your Saint Maker for a full refund, including shipping. First Things listeners can learn more and get 10% off their first Saint Maker by visiting thesaintmaker.com backslash first things and entering promo code first things. You draw a parallel between the fall, Eve and the serpent, and the Annunciation, Mary and the angel. What 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 are you implying there? Well, what women Women's responses to God are very influential. <laughs> they have the capacity to um, completely shape human history and the trajectory of the human race. Um, and, you know, and this is not, I'm not the one who's, who's drawing this out. You'll see this in the early church fathers as well, right? That Eve, that Mary's yes at the moment of the Annunciation um, is a way of kind of undoing Eve's um, no to God in her desire um, to be like God rather than to say yes to the way in which she's already an image bearer of God. Um, so in that way, Mary is the new Eve, right? So her her yes undoes or has the potential to undo, um, especially if we participate in it through grace, um, the, the ramifications of sin. Uh, you 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 mentioned Jesus uh, responding to the Pharisees who challenge him over the matter of divorce. That uh, Jesus goes back to Genesis, like you yeah. did at the beginning of your book. What what is what does Jesus say there? Right. So I I appeal to that part in Scripture in order to show because you know I could see someone thinking, okay, well, what can Genesis really? how can Genesis really help us in these current contemporary debates about gender? I mean, this is an ancient text, totally different world. How can it really speak to us now? Um, and, you know, sometimes Christians, I think, don't take the Old Testament that seriously. They're like, eh, you know, the Old Testament, but where, where things really become important is when is when Christ comes. Um, but Christ himself, when he's asked about how we should live as men and women in the world, when it comes to marriage and sexuality, he points back not to the Mosaic law. 
He doesn't issue some new interpretation, but he points back to Genesis. So I think that shows that Genesis, and especially that original order, the original order, right? So he appeals back before the fall to Genesis. So that original order and that dynamic of harmony and communion um, between the sexes is still speaks the truth about who we are and what we're made for. And I think Christ shows us that directly. So it points to the relevance of Genesis when it comes to understanding the meaning of manhood and womanhood. You talk a lot about your own experience of teaching gender theory, uh, you, but you stopped teaching it, you say, in, in 2016. Uh, wh- why did that happen? Oh, man. I t- yeah, so I last taught gender theory, um, and this is at my previous institution in the fall of 2016. And I think I, I would teach it again now. Um, but part of it was, you know, I became Catholic in 2014. So part of it was, this was my first, well, I think it was my second time teaching it after becoming Catholic, but it was my first time teaching it where I set up the course differently, um, as almost a worldview comparison between the Christian understanding of the world and then the implied worldview that's present in much of gender theory. Um, and it was just very difficult. Um, I think the... There were a number of students who took the course and there were students who were just genuinely curious and wanted to learn and they were wonderful to teach. But I think there were also some students who were already so indoctrinated in a particular way of understanding that I almost felt like I was kind of going into battle in a way every time to. And so it became sort of exhausting. But also a problem with gender theory, especially teaching it to undergraduates, is that a lot of contemporary gender theory is so obscure and difficult to read. And I began to realize that that makes it in some way, it's, it hides behind this air of sophistication. And so it's like, it's very easy for undergraduates to kind of grab on, grab onto the few things that seem to be understandable, and then just kind of absorb those without being able to really understand the things that are being taken for granted underneath, right? But now, honestly, I would like to and hope to develop a course here at Notre Dame um, that would be a theology of gender course or a theology of woman course, um, because I I feel much more prepared um, to do that now. I think um, that the dust has settled a bit from my own big worldview change. Um, and I've written this book, which was helpful for me to just sort of sort my own thoughts about it. Yeah. You know, you you're contrasting here sort of really a Christian conception of, of the human person that the a lot of young people have been acculturated one way or another against. And you have an interesting phrase here that maybe this sums up the postmodern outlook here. You say, quote, one's telos is to define one's telos. Is that the attitude that you would run up against? Actually, why don't you explain that attitude and and tell us how you how you would face it? I talk about this a little bit in the book. I have a couple of examples. Um, so one one difficulty I ran into in trying to teach this stuff was that it became hard for students to follow a line of argument, 
right? So um, like, let's say if we, I remember one session we were talking about abortion, we read a couple different essays on different sides of the issue. And instead of really engaging with the argument, um, the students would kind of pivot to seize up another line of argument. Like say if we were trying to follow the light of the argument about whether or not an unborn child is a human being or a person, right? Let's talk about that scientifically and philosophically. They would suddenly pivot and say, oh, well, Christians have done all these horrible things in, in history. And so, and so they would just go to a totally different line of thought, right? So it was often very hard to get them to really just wrestle with the ideas in the text rather than revert to talking points. I think because a lot of this, especially kind of pop gender theory, you know, they absorb in the form of like tweet and tweets and TikTok videos and slogans. Um, and so they kind of revert to a script rather than really entering into, I think, a, a real philosophical discussion. And so I found that to be difficult. But there were moments, though, where it was successful. So one of my favorite moments in that particular seminar um, there were times when I got them to see some of the inherent contradictions in the ideas that they were using. So for example, I remember once I asked them, we were talking about sexual identity and um, you know, the students were using the phrase sex assigned at birth, which has kind of become what people say now, but that word assigned imports so much philosophical assumptions that people aren't aware of, right? Because it makes it sound as though sex is something arbitrarily assigned. It's something imposed by society rather than something that is recognized and innate um, and therefore something that could be changed or can be wrong. And, but I asked them, I said, okay, so what about sexual orientation? Like, is that innate? Are you, you know, are people born gay, straight? And they were like, yes, absolutely. And I said, okay, well then how can you have an innate sexual orientation in other words, an innate orientation to something that is itself a social construct, right? So the idea of an innate sexual orientation breaks down if you don't actually take sex itself seriously. Um, so there are really interesting things actually happening, I think, within, you know, our culture tends to lump the L and the G and the B and the T together, but there's actually some really interesting tensions and debates happening between lesbians and gays and transgender people on this issue, right? Because now increasingly you'll have this narrative that it's transphobic, say, for a lesbian not to want to have sex with a, a trans-identifying man. So a man who identifies as a woman and identifies as a lesbian, right? So you, you essentially have a, a heterosexual man who's identifying as a woman and wants to have sex with women. And then you have a lesbian who's like, yeah, no thanks, right? Uh, but what's interesting is that there's now this push for a lesbian to kind of violate her own sexual boundaries in order to please this kind of narrative that um, a trans woman is a woman. So there really are some interesting tensions, I think, between the concept of sexual orientation and then the concept of sex being a construct. One of the things you said a moment ago about how the, the students, they can pick up some basic things, maybe, maybe some clear uh, messages from some of these very sophisticated authors like Foucault or uh, writers whose prose is as turgid as oatmeal, like Judith Butler. <laughs> the woman can't write a clear, uh, a, a good paragraph. But that in a way, I mean, you, you say this, that it enables the students or prevents them from realizing just how radical these theorists right. are. 
for instance, the performativity yes. notion in Butler, they kind of like that idea. Oh, I can be this or I can right. do that. Not realizing there's no you. Yes. <laughs> right. Performativity right. all the way down. Yes. Uh, how would they respond if you, if, I mean, maybe you did try to show them this. Did they get defensive? Did they shy away from that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. So yes, they like the idea of gender as a performance because there's something intuitively true about that, right? I mean, there are ways in which we perform our gender, right? Through what we wear, we express it, okay? But what students often don't realize is that Butler's not just arguing that we express our gender and, you know, we we perform our gender to a certain extent, that gender is something we do. She's not just arguing that. She's arguing that it's only something we do. Like there is actually, you know, she says it's a performance that creates the illusion of an essence. So there's no real gender that's being expressed. The expression itself creates the illusion of something being expressed. And I think that that's, people don't like that. And what, you, what you'll see actually, ironically, is that when you look at, I think, kind of the pop gender theory, slogans like trans women are women, for example, those are those statements are making very realist and even essentialist claims. And that doesn't actually jive with, with what Judith Butler writes. Um, so ironically, I think people are, I think her philosophy and her theory has trickled down and enabled us, enabled our culture to disregard um, to kind of uproot very important understandings of what it means to be men and women. But then what happens is most people don't become, you know, super postmodern anti-realists about it. They just assert different accounts of reality and try to impose those on other people, right? So they're making mm -hmm. realist claims. So I mean, the whole project of queer theory and, and especially queer theory is to disrupt categorization, is to disrupt norms. It's like being a perpetual gadfly but what we have now is this proliferation of new norms, new categories that are then intensely policed and linguistically policed, right? So there's this interesting paradox here where that, that kind of popular iteration of these theories doesn't actually match up with what she's arguing. So it takes a different form um, when it's, it becomes popularized. You say that Butler wants to, quote, decouple uh, human reproduction from heterosexual relationships. And, and I think you're right there. Why, why would someone want to do this? What is, what is the goal? What is the purpose there? Uh, getting human reproduction out of, the, out of the equation. Yeah, well, I think Butler's pretty explicit that her whole project is motivated um, by the desire to normalize or naturalize. Well, she doesn't really want to naturalize anything. To denaturalize heterosexuality, right, in order to kind of affirm or to make room for non-heterosexual kinds of identities. Um, and so that's a, that's a foundational premise for her. Um, so that's why she comes after concepts like gender or even sex to say that it's a social construct, right? And so she's, she's so radical about this. One thing I like about Butler, though, is that she's consistent. So she, she even argues against things like the incest taboo, because she's based, you know, she's basically arguing against any kind of naturalization of sexuality or any kind of argument that a certain kind of sexual activity is unnatural. So that includes incest, right? Um, and there are certain corners of queer theory that try to normalize um, pedophilia, right? So 
Um, that's not necessarily a dominant, a, a dominant view, but it's certainly there. And uh, you, you see that animated in Butler. So again, I don't think people quite realize how radical she is um, in her, in her philosophy. Yeah. You know, if we, we, we bring it up today, <laughs> you, you go into a, a, an HR training that you underwent that was mandated uh, and that in the training, one had to use the term pregnant people yeah. instead of pregnant women. What, what was this for? I'm, I'm, I was just curious reading, reading that episode. What did they think they were doing? Well, you know, I mean, I think people, you know, like institutions, they, um, they kind of hire outside companies to do um, compliance training, like HR compliance training, right? So this wasn't something that was generated at my institution um, at the time, but it was a mess. It was a mess all over the place. It was also just inconsistent. So there was I, there was also a slide that said, you know, it's important not to, you know, it's important to make sure that sex and gender are different, but then it didn't really define how they're different. And then the rest of the slides literally conflated them by sex slash gender, right? So this just, it doesn't actually make any sense. There's all this linguistic confusion. And I think that that is sometimes an intentional strategy because it just knocks people off their guard. It's so confusing that I think a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what the heck's happening. So, okay, yeah, just tell me what to say. I don't want to, you know, offend anyone. Um, but there's so much linguistic confusion. And yes, that that particular slide that said, you know, the the word pregnant or the phrase pregnant woman was now offensive. That one, you know, or breastfeeding, right? That's an offensive term. We need to say chest feeding. So basically anything that appeals to um, sex rather than a subjective sense of gender um, was verboten. So I think, I think that kind of terminology has really become the norm in most HR settings, a lot of business settings. And I think people often start using the language without realizing the kind of philosophical concessions they're making and adopting it. And I, I guess in my own work, I really want to draw people's attention to that because language, actually, this is something that postmodernists are onto. They get this right. Language can profoundly shape our perception of reality. But the difference is, this is where I diverge from the hardcore postmodernists, is that, but reality pushes back. So our language can be at odds with reality, right? And you can see this in history, different regimes who use language in order to manipulate the populace. You know, we can see this in colonization. We can see this in the Nazi regime, right? So different ways of using language to kind of blunt people's perceptions about what's going on. And that's what's happening, really, because a lot of these identities that are being asserted are purely linguistic and the, because they're not attached to material reality. And so the only way this can, can really exist and be perpetuated in society is if everyone else plays along by using the same language. And you better, <laughs> you know, what you said earlier about the policing, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tighter than ever before. On, on, on college campuses and, and in society at large, increasingly. Uh, anyway, there's much more uh, in, in the book, discussions of, of contraception, um, of intersectionality, uh, of, of that, those confusions with that, that distinction uh, of sex and gender and the, and the term gender itself. But 
for, for now, the book is The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. Uh, Professor Favale, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.